The History of the World podcast, written and presented by Chris Hasler. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Volume 4. The Medieval World. Episode 68. The Battle of Jongdu. The medieval city of Zhongdu in China is at the same location as the modern city of Beijing. The area around Beijing has a fascinating human history that stretches right the way back to the prehistoric period. All the way back in the fourth episode of this very podcast about the ancestral human species called Homo erectus, we spoke of a discovery made at a site called Dian of a fossil which has been named in the English-speaking scientific world as Peking Man. The fossil is over half a million years old, quite an unimaginable amount of time ago to the average human being. The name Peking is a version of Beijing, which was used officially as the city's name until recently when an effort was made to call the city by its proper name of Beijing. Peking Man is the oldest one of a number of prehistoric human fossils found at Dian and in and around the Beijing area as well as wider China. Despite the land around Beijing being fairly barren, its close proximity to the Bohai Sea meant that it was an area of human occupation going into the Neolithic period. Historical records suggest a settlement existed near or at Beijing before the archaeological record firmly supports the existence of a settlement there from the days of the Western Zhou dynasty around 3,000 years ago, which makes it one of the oldest surviving cities in the world. The settlement would grow in importance throughout the first millennium BCE, serving as a capital city for its local rulers. The first emperor of a unified China, Qin Shi Huang, turned the city then known as Jicheng into his western capital. Due to its comparative proximity to the northernmost lands of China's influence, the city itself was not very far from the Great Wall of China, enhanced during this period to keep barbarians out of China. As such, the city never really became more than a provincial capital during the first millennium CE. However, for the same reason, its location, it did become an important strategical city for China. 
we refer to the people who are ethnically Chinese as the Han peoples. And those nomads of whom we refer to as barbarians on the northern side of the Great Wall were ethnically different. The Chinese had a catch-all term for their non-Han barbarian neighbours to the north. They would call them Hu and of all the Hu people, the ones that we have referred to more frequently throughout this podcast series are the Xiongnu and the Xiangbei, both of whom originated from nomadic lifestyles on the steppe. During the later years of the Han Dynasty, also called the Eastern Han Dynasty, there was a lot more Hu activity on the Chinese Empire's northern fringes. The breakup of Han China excited this activity as barbarian tribes were able to take advantage of the opportunities presented by the fragmentation of the state. The city of Jicheng was very close to these borderlands that were affected by this political situation. In particular, the Xianbei were the ethnic tribes close to this city. We understand that people of Han ethnicity did integrate with Hu invaders, so there was more of an ethnic mix in the north of China after a generation or two. During the 4th century, a dynasty called the former Yan controlled a small area of land which included the city of Jicheng, and this dynasty was governed by members of the Murong tribe who were ethnically Xianbei, so the city of Jicheng modern Beijing or Zhongdu for the benefit of today's story was being ruled by non-Chinese or non-Han or Hu peoples as the Han people would call them. Another barbarian tribe called the Di would displace the Xianbei, former Yan and replace it with the former Qin dynasty so the presence of barbarian tribes would continue to rule over Jicheng and this would continue for a number of centuries under various Hu people's dynasties as China remained disunified. In the main part, the dynasties that did rule over the city of Jicheng did have Xianbei origins up until the end of the 6th century when a Buddhist statesman called Yang Zhen took control of the state and started the Sui dynasty of China, which would eventually reunify all of China. Yang Zhen was a member of an aristocracy which is described by the professor and author of Chinese history, Harold M. Tanner, as being of mixed ethnicity and despite this ethnic mixture containing both Xianbei and Han blood, Yang Zhen would favour Han traditions which brought the city of Jicheng back under a culturally Chinese regime. Yang Zhen can be recognised as the Emperor Wen of Sui, the man who reunified China for the first time since the 3rd century. The city was very much under ethnically Chinese rule under the subsequent Tang dynasty, but still the issue of Jicheng being on the northern fringes of the lands under Chinese influence made it a viable target for the numerous variety of nomadic barbarians who occupied and controlled the lands to the north. This made the city a very important strategical location, as well as being a vulnerable target for aggressors. 
However, the location was very important, meaning that it would be in the interest of the latest occupiers to rebuild the city. And this is what would happen. The city would undergo some name changes. Many would refer to the city as Yojo towards the end and in the aftermath of the Tang dynasty, but this more accurately referred to the administrative division of land that Ji Cheng would be at the centre of. The Kitans, another semi-nomadic peoples of the north, sacked the city of Yozhou upon their conquest of northern China in the 10th century, but they would rebuild the city and call it Nanjing. The Kitans established a dynastic rule of the area in the north of China, extending it into the wilderness of the north, and it was named the Liao dynasty, and it would control the city of Nanjing from the 10th to the 12th century. So our city of many names had had a history of passing from Han Chinese rulers to barbarian tribal rulers from the steppe lands in the north. The Jin Dynasty Another of the ethnic groups from the lands of the nomads were the Jurchens. The Jurchens had mixed ethnicity. Among the Mongolic and Turkic-speaking tribes of the steppe lands were the Tungusic-speaking tribes, of which the Jurchens were a descendant. The Jurchens were also related to the people of the defunct nation-state of Palhae, which was centred on Manchuria, but would also have a great influence on the cultures of the Korean peninsula. They specialised in horse breeding, and their skill and produce was in high demand from its neighbours, such as the Liao dynasty of northern China. Their lifestyle in Manchuria at the time of their firm establishment there in the 11th century was much more sedentary than that of some of the steppeland cultures to the north. The Jurchens lived in the shadow of their more wealthy and established neighbours to their west, the Kitans. They initially interfered in the politics of the Korean peninsula before declaring themselves as a dynastic polity called the Jin dynasty with its own emperor. It was this establishment of an imperial nation-state that alarmed their western neighbours, the Liao dynasty of the Kitans. When the Jurchens demonstrated expansionist ambitions, the Song dynasty, who ruled over most of China, were willing to assist the Jurchens against the Liao dynasty of the Kitans. The Liao dynasty was defeated and their lands taken by the Jurchens and the Kitans had to re-establish themselves further west towards Central Asia and a rump state called Karakitai. The Jurchens then turned on their Song Chinese allies and started raiding their territory. As tensions escalated, so did the political situation. The Song Emperor was initially deposed and then captured by the Jurchens, and so the Song withdrew to the south allowing the Jurchens to cement their Jin dynasty territories in the north of the traditional heartlands of China itself, therefore centred around the Yellow River Valley. The Song, who had previously occupied all of China, were now pushed down to the Yangtze River Valley. The Jin dynasty firmly established itself as a Chinese dynasty during the 12th century, but the reality was that Jin China was a state divided. 
many officials believed that by adopting and integrating Chinese bureaucracy that the nation state would be more likely to prosper. However, this was too much for some of the steadfast Jurchens who did not want to see their nation lose its Jurchen identity just to become another Chinese dynasty. The Mongol Empire The Mongols originated on the eastern steppe where everyday life differed hugely from the more developed agricultural societies of the south, where people lived in a sustained and highly organised society, at least certainly in the cities. There were no cities on the steppe. In fact, societies travelled seasonally as the climate was harsh, especially during the winter months. And not only was survival difficult on the steppe because of this, but it would also be hard for the animals of the steppe, who seasonally migrated as a consequence. So when the tribes of the steppe migrated, they would be tracking the movements of animal herds, and it would be the animal herds that would provide the steppe tribes with almost everything they needed for survival, from the meat and dairy products that they consumed, to the hides that would clothe and shelter them. There's no reason to not think that life on the steppe had been this way, not just for centuries, but also millenniums, as evidently much of humankind lived a nomadic existence since before the agricultural revolution. And due to the infertility of the land and climate of the steppe, life continued this way after the agricultural or Neolithic revolution brought about farming and settlements that developed into the modern societies that most of us are familiar with today. Therefore, this nomadic or semi-nomadic way of life was quite normal for all of the 12th century societies of the steppe, whether they be Mongolic, Turkic or any of the many other ethnicities to be found there. What one branch of the Mongols did was begin a tribal alliance that would grow to become something formidable. The skills and weapons that the Mongols used for herding and killing the wildlife of the steppe could also be used to be successful in warfare, such as the swiftness of horsemanship and the accuracy of archers. The Mongols also had the ability to move en masse at speed, which meant that they could stretch their supply lines better than most other societies. Chinggis Khan Chinggis Khan was actually born and named Temujin, perhaps around the year 1162. His father, whose name was Isuke, was the leader of the Kamag Mongols, and it is believed that he was carrying this responsibility on his shoulders when Temujin was born. The Kamag Mongols were a powerful coalition of many Mongol tribes under one leader. After Isuge died, the Kamag Mongols were fragmented and Temujin had to stay on the move to avoid being assassinated for his birthright as the leader of the Kamag Mongols. He needed to grow up fast and he needed to learn how to surround himself with friends to be able to avoid his enemies. So when he came of age, he began to gather the tribes of the Kamag Mongols once again. He wouldn't do this through military conquest alone, but he would try to form a much more modern political union with a legal code and a system of promoting the most deserving individuals to strong political positions, as opposed to the traditional system of aristocratic inheritance. 
This made Temujin generally popular, and not just with the Kamag Mongol tribes, but also with the wider Mongol population. By the year 1206, Temujin had united the Mongol people under one structured rule, and his influence began to stretch to non-Mongolic tribes also. It has been estimated that when Temujin was declared as Chinggis Khan, the great ruler of the Mongol Empire, that he would have been responsible for around one million people. Chinggis Khan would believe that he had a divine right to further extend his influence beyond the societies of the steppe lands, and so he would set his sights on the Chinese dynasties to the south of the steppe that occupied the traditional lands of China and the westward beginnings of the Silk Road. The westward route was known as the Hexi Corridor and was occupied by a Tangut dynasty called the Western Xia. And this would be Chinggis Khan's first target outside of the steppe tribes. Emperor Xuanzong of Jin The emperors of the Jin dynasty originated from a tribe of the Jurchens from back when they were evolving in the Russian Far East. The tribe were called Wenyan and it was seemingly established during the 10th century by an individual called Han Pu who possibly came from the nation state of Korea to the north of the Korean peninsula. The descendants of Han Pu were leaders of the Wenyan dynasty of leaders and they would unite the Jurchen tribes who would collectively develop into a nation of people. One member of the Wanyan was called Wudubu, born in 1163. This was a time when the Jin dynasty was firmly established as the power of northern China, having pushed the existing Chinese dynasty of the Song into the far south. On his birth, Wudubu's grandfather was the emperor of Jin China, ruling as Emperor Shizong. As can be expected, Wudubu had a number of royal titles throughout his young life and would come to be known as Wenyang Zongjia, a ceremonial name that also referred to his tribe, the Wenyang. In the year 1208, Wenyang Zongjia's uncle would become the Jin Emperor Wenyang Yongji. We spoke a lot of Wenyang Yongji during our first episode about the Mongols and it was due to the fact that Wenyang Yongji had an agreement with their Silk Road neighbours, the Western Xia, that Jin China would act as their suzerain, which meant that if the emerging Mongols attacked Western Xia, Jin China would be expected to step in and aid the defence of their territory. When this did happen, Wenyang Yongji decided not to help. This led to the Mongol conquest and subjugation of Western Xia, leaving Western Xia with a strong feeling of hostility towards Jin China. Biding their time, the Mongols under Chinggis Khan crossed over the Great Wall of China and invaded the Jin in 1211, and it would not take long for the Mongols to reach the capital city of Zhongdu, which is our city of many names. The Jin had renamed the Liao dynasty of Nanjing after their conquest and displacement of the Kitans. The Mongols could not sustain a siege on Zhongdu this early on in their campaign and so they chose to retreat 
and reformulate their plans. If this seemed like a moral victory for Wang Yang Yongji, then the glory would be short-lived as the Mongols returned the following year and the Jurchen Jin was losing its faith in Wang Yang Yongji. A Jin military general called Hershi Lia Ji Zhong took the initiative and assassinated the hapless emperor Wang Yang Yongji and proceeded to install his young nephew Wang Yang Zhongjia to the imperial throne. Wang Yang Yongji never received a posthumous imperial name, something that is traditionally a common occurrence in Far East countries, especially China, maybe to justify this act of regicide. However, the installation of Wang Yang Zhongjia as the new emperor was well supported by many officials of the state. Wang Yang Zhongjia would come to be known as Emperor Xuanzong and would very quickly have to deal with the Mongol threat. Prelude to the Battle We have learned that the Mongols invaded Jin China in 1211 after defeating Western Xia in 1210. The number of the Mongol army is unknown but Chenghis Khan may have had over 100,000 military personnel at his disposal, and they would be a variety of individuals from teenagers to old and wise men. The specialists of the Mongol army has to be their mounted archers, who were highly trained and skilled in their abilities, able to attack with blistering speed. What we have learned about the Mongol army is that they lacked the technological expertise of the armies of more developed nations. So what they had in terms of discipline and speed, they would fall short on when it came to laying siege to cities or fortifications. A good example of this was when the Mongol army were attempting to attack the western Xia capital of Xinjiang, and they had to cross a heavily fortified mountain pass. Had it not been for Chinggis Khan's cunning, where he drew the Western Xia army out of the fortification by performing a feigned retreat, the Mongols may not have been able to continue the siege. Although the Mongols did successfully conquer the Western Xia and their capital city of Xinjiang, the Jing capital city at Zhongdu would be a completely different prospect altogether. The Jin had renamed the city of Nanjing, modern Beijing, after they had defeated the Liao dynasty and taken control of northern China. The city of Zhongdu was heavily fortified and a series of underground tunnels led to outlying garrison settlements. These settlements are described as having around 4,000 troops stationed at each one, with a further 20,000 military personnel actually within the city walls themselves. The Mongols had not conquered a city anything like Jondu in their history. The Jin themselves were the product of the Jurchen peoples of Manchuria and the Russian Far East, and as such they were noted for being skilled horsemen but also, and significantly for the purpose of this story, skilled archers capable of sending a rain of arrows down on any approaching enemy. Chinggis Khan could have been biting more off than he could chew here. When Chinggis Khan reached Zhongdu, he ordered the attack 
and the Mongols attempted to break through the city's defences. If you remember back, the Jin Emperor was Emperor Xuanzong, and he had been installed by the rebellious Jin military general Hu Xuelie Ji Zhong. Hu Xuelie Ji Zhong, who was also known as Hu Shahu, had been assassinated before the Mongols started attacking Zhongdu, so he was no longer in the picture. Under pressure, the Jurchens would come up with a plan to attempt to weaken the Mongols and their resolve. Some of the Mongol attackers were permitted to breach one of the gates. As they did, the Jurchens isolated them by setting the ground behind them alight and slaughtering those Mongols trapped within their city walls. While successful, it didn't prevent the Mongols from continuing their siege and eventually the Jurchens would have to come to some sort of terms in order to prevent their own further suffering. Emperor Xuanzong gave the hand of a Jin princess to Chinggis Khan for marriage, along with a thousand horses and a large amount of gold alongside silver and silk. Most significantly of all, Emperor Xuanzong was forced to consider Chinggis Khan as his overlord, and with all of that promised to Chinggis Khan, the Mongols released the siege. After the Mongols had retreated from Zhongdu, feeling proud that the Jin capital city had knelt down to their superiority, Emperor Xuanzong made a very brave decision. Without notifying the Mongols, he moved his capital city. He would move further south to the city of Kaifeng, and when Chenghis Khan found out, he was very unimpressed. A large army was dispatched, and it would contain a variety of people, including Mongols, Kitans and Chinese rebels. The Battle of Zhongdu Now it's very important for those of you who follow the History of the World podcast closely that we address something in terms of these battle episodes. There are some battles that contain a fascinating story about a developing battle. One such battle is the Siege of Jerusalem after the First Crusade, which is a developing story of tactics, counter-tactics and attrition. But there are others which have very little detail whatsoever, and the Battle of Zhongdu in 1215 is certainly one of those. Why do we bother telling these stories? Well, the significance of these battles outweighs the details. This particular battle highlights the shortcomings of the Mongols in terms of their technological advancement, but also demonstrates that sometimes it's about preparation, leadership and tactics. In Chinggis Khan, the Mongols had an incredible leader who was not just fearless, but also remarkably successful. Chinggis Khan made it his business to win battles and he used ingenuity to achieve it. Moving a capital city is not as easy as it sounds, as we found out during our episode on the Delhi Sultanate of India, when the Sultan Mohammed bin Tughluq attempted to move the capital city from Delhi to Devagiri. The relocation of everything would be an arduous process for the population, and many of the Kitans who lived within Jin China at Zhongdu would be upset about the move, possibly feeling that they were moving southwards, further away from their homelands, but also possibly because they were losing faith in the Jurchens. 
It would be the fact that the Kitans mutinied and brought the news of the migration to the Mongols that caused Chinggis Khan to learn of the Jurchen's betrayal. He considered the Jurchen relocation as a deception and he was not going to tolerate it. Chinggis Khan decided to besiege Zhongdu once more, but this time he was in it for the long haul, choosing to camp outside the city and plunder the countryside, which not only helped to feed the Mongol army, but also helped to starve the city. Emperor Xuanzong did attempt to send relief from Keifeng to Zhongdu, but the Mongols simply destroyed the relief and took the spoils for themselves. As the summer of 1215 approached, after many months of siege, things were starting to look very grim indeed for the population of Zhongdu. Various sources tell us various different details about the desperate situation that the population of Zhongdu found themselves in. Initially, it is claimed that once the defenders had run out of ammunition for their cannons, that they would resort to melting down any gold and silver objects in order to create more ammunition for their cannons. As the residents began resorting to cannibalism to survive, the military leaders would realise that there was no future for the city. Some of the commanders left the city, but not all. One other would be known to commit suicide, while another tried to escape to Keifeng, where he was executed for his cowardice. Ultimately, the gates were opened and the Mongols took their prize. Aftermath After the Mongol victory at Zhongdu, Chinggis Khan retreated northwards but left a Mongol presence at the city. Chinggis Khan was noted as a great military disciplinarian, but without him overseeing what was going on in Zhongdu, the population of the city suffered hugely at the hands of the Mongols. It is described that many of the population were raped and murdered at the hands of their captors, and this would set a precedent for future Mongol victories. We will find out in future episodes just how merciless the Mongols were capable of being. We will also concentrate on the story of Chinggis Khan in our next episode and try to analyse why he was so militarily capable and how his achievements transcended his own lifetime as Mongol successes would continue, something which can often not be the case with great leaders. The fall of Zhongdu would be part of a series of events that would eventually see Jin China fall to the Mongols and the amazing thing was that they didn't even have to commit themselves fully to battling the Jurchens to make this happen. This could have been mainly for two reasons. Firstly, the Mongols were always highly active while marauding through enemy countryside. Not only would they plunder whatever was available in the remote towns and farmsteads, but they would also destroy them so that they could not supply the central state and its major cities. So even if the Mongols were distracted by warfare on other fronts, the victim state might only be able to gather the resources to survive, let alone re-strengthen and rebuild. This would make Jin China a sitting duck for the Mongols when they returned in numbers. Secondly, the Mongols would recruit the men of the towns that they terrorised and integrate them into their own armies. 
they would be separated from each other and dispersed into the main army to prevent group rebellions from disgruntled ethnic groups from within their ranks. Jin China was also a victim of its own attitude towards its vassal, Western Xia, which the Jurchens abandoned to its fate when the Mongols invaded. The Jurchens would turn to the south and the state of Song China for support against the Mongols, but the Song had not forgiven the Jin for taking northern China from them in the previous century and were happy to see the Mongols punish them, despite the Jin warning the Song that they could be subject to a similar fate. And later on in the century, the Song certainly would be. We will continue our stories on both Chenghis Khan, himself and the Mongols in future episodes. We have also covered the fate of Song China in at When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply episode dedicated to them. Thank you very much indeed for listening to this week's episode of the History of the World podcast on the Battle of Zhongdu, which um, is a, an integral part of the earliest conquests of the Mongols and uh, certainly one of the defining moments in Chinggis Khan's lifetime. If you enjoy the podcast and want to support the podcast, then visit our website. Click on the Patreon link and sign up to make a monthly contribution. You will become a lifelong member of the History of the World podcast Illuminati and you will qualify for gifts and rewards. Uh, the website is History of the World Podcast. Uh, com history of the world podcast.com the email address is history of the world podcast at mail.com so if you want to get in touch with me please drop me a line there listener messages and reviews i received a message from ronnie gallagher saying hello chris i enjoyed your pre-dynastic egyptian podcast i was wondering if you were aware of the cultural connections between the caucasus southern russia that was briefly investigated by sir william flinders petrie Uh, petrie was adamant that the earliest egyptians had an ancestral homeland in the caucasus but could not explain how the $64,000 question is what caused people to migrate away from the caucasus and eurasia The answer relates to a cataclysmic marine flood and flood survivors migrating to the Mediterranean region and the Nile Valley. The flood reached an elevation of 222 metres or 730 feet above sea level. Um, If interested, I can explain further with evidence, including an an explanation for the origin of the original Sphinx at Giza. Question, can you advise on any DNA studies that have been carried out on the Badarian or Nakadan human remains? Uh, I am unable to find any information 
on this online. A comparison to Caucasus remains would be interesting and definitive. Regards, Ronnie Gallagher. Um, thank you for emailing in, Ronnie. I can see that you're very passionate about the work that you do in this area. Um, I've got to be honest, um, you certainly know a lot more than I do, Ronnie. Um, I don't know of any DNA studies that have been carried out on um, on prehistoric Egyptian human remains, I must admit. Um, I I certainly can't see any anything obvious online that relates to that. Um, I certainly, certainly makes sense to me that um, a geographical change or a climate change would force a mass migration. How many times during this podcast series have we seen that being the case, whether it be a volcanic eruption, you know, maybe even a flood, a rising of sea levels. Um, certainly geographical changes do bring about mass migration. Um, how how much of an impact it would have had on ancient Egypt? I, th- I think the only question that I would ask is to say that certainly there, there must have been... that. Neolithic Egypt was a much more fertile land than it is now. So you would assume that being quite near to the Mediterranean and the Nile River, that there would have been populations of people there um, before any migration from the Caucasus. So um, if there is any, um, any connection, you would imagine it would be like a hybrid um, society that emerged from a migration. You know, I wouldn't have imagined it would be solely the Caucasus. Uh, so often we see we there's often a lot of fluidity in migrations, and uh, and so peoples would have been meeting peoples constantly throughout history, and uh, so that that would be the only gut feeling I've got without having having studied this uh, particular. Um, migration theory myself so but anyway very interesting Ronnie and uh, feel feel free to post um, anything relating to your work on on the history of the world social media pages as uh, you know we all like to know about this it shouldn't be something it should always be shared shouldn't it Um, and certainly there's a, a large population of history of the world podcast followers hot worlders that would probably be very interested in what you're Uh, what you're publishing there, Ronnie. So anyway, thank you so much for the email. That's it for this week. Next week, there's going to be a History of the World podcast magazine. I haven't decided what the subject will be. We're going to be going, we're going to be doing some more Masters of War um, in a few weeks time. But I would like to change direction a little bit for next week. So if you've got any ideas, nothing too complicated. It just has to be based on previous episodes and the material of previous episodes. It needs to be something simple like, I don't know, uh, you know, like like battles won against the odds, something that's in our catalogue already or, you know, great leaders or, you know, any anything to do with that. Maybe get away from warfare. I think some people get a little bit... Um, get a little bit zoned out by too much warfare, don't they? So, but if you've got any suggestions, uh, let me know. Otherwise, I'll, I'll simply pluck something out of the air, really. Um, but, uh, yeah, something that will relate to the existing podcast library, let's say, the existing episode library. Uh, other than that, I'll certainly find something. And in two weeks' time, a big episode, a profile 
on Chinggis Khan. We're going to look at his entire life and, uh, you know, certainly look at the legacy of his life as well. Anyway, that's it. Thanks very much and uh, for listening this week. Don't forget there's a debrief episode. You always get a debrief episode. So um, certainly if you haven't had enough, there's going to be another 10 minutes bonus episode. Go and listen to that as well, the debrief episode. It comes out um, similar or at the same time as this particular episode. So go and look for that. Um, otherwise, until we speak again, be good. The History of the World podcast, written and presented by Chris Hasler. Please consider making a financial contribution by going to the historyoftheworldpodcast.com website and clicking on the Patreon link. Email the show at historyoftheworldpodcast at mail.com. And don't forget to join our social media at Facebook, Twitter, Instagram and Tumblr. See you next time.